Hello, welcome to the West Side Podcast. This is where we'll post some of our audio from our sermons on Sunday, and we're so glad that you're here. West Side's vision is to reconcile people to God through the grace of Jesus step by step. We hope you enjoy, and thanks for tuning in. We're going to talk about loving your digital neighbor this morning. Um, a topic where when each of us think about um, technology or life in the digital age, I think we all kind of naturally think of, oh yeah, this, uh, this is a pertinent topic. Uh, there are some things that are maybe not going as well as they could be uh, in my life. Uh, and what I've found in um, talking about this with, with folks is often I get to the end and I hear people say things like, oh, I really wish so-and-so could have heard that. Uh, or I really know, uh, I know a bunch of people who, who would have benefited from that. And I appreciate that sentiment for sure. Um, but what I would encourage us to do is to think about uh, the ways that this stuff applies to us first, um, and maybe not so much about everybody else. Uh, the more that we are monitoring uh, and nitpicking other people, um, the more we often like lose our focus on what's most important um, for us. So um, let's, let's listen with, with tender hearts to what the Spirit might be saying to us this morning. Um, I'm going to pray, um, and then we're, we'll launch in. Lord, we uh, ask, as we come before you this morning, um, uh, just that you come be here with us and give us um, uh, hearts that are eager to hear and to listen and uh, to be changed, uh, minds that are sharp and um, focused and undistracted from um, all of the stuff. Um, we thank you that you are here in this moment. Um, I just ask that you um, uh, prep us for uh, the stuff that you want to do in us and then send us back out. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, uh, Anglican priest and author uh, Arthur Bears talks about uh, our approach to technology being like our approach to a yellow light. Um, uh, this, this is not about, I, put, I included a picture of one just in case you've forgotten what that uh, looked like. Yep, there it is, yellow light. <laughs> this is not a 60 mile an hour speed sign saying go forward as fast as you can. It's also not a red light. It's not a stop sign. Right, and I sometimes when we get into this technology discussion, uh, some some parts of it can be frustrating and um, even depressing to an extent when we think about the distracting elements uh, of technology, and and it can be tempting at times to want to pump the brakes and and just go full Luddite and say, I'm throwing the phone away, I'm getting rid of all of my social media, I'm not doing anything on a screen ever again. And there are moments like nearly weekly where I I. Uh, rub up against that sort of thought. Uh, but that's not the point. And when it comes to Christian discipleship and when it comes to Christian wisdom in, in general, 
just living a life wisely before God, faithfully before God. Uh, there's very few like full red light and full green light issues. Uh, most of life is kind of in this gray area, an area that requires a yellow light. What does a yellow light do? It causes you to take an assessment of the whole situation. <coughs> you see what's happening right in front of you. You see what's happening around you. You see what's happening within your own car. And then assess, do we put the brakes on or do we, do we move forward? We don't have to, whenever a new technology comes out, it's probably not wise to just say no, just because it's new, it's bad. Uh, that's not helpful. Uh, but also, on the, same, on the other side of the same token, it's not wise or helpful to see a new device or app come out and say, oh, just because it's new, it's good. Right? There, there's no room, really, in Christian discipleship for us to just go full speed ahead, thumbs up with every new thing that comes along and say, oh, well, I'll just figure it out later. I'll just think about it later. There's no think about it later in the kingdom of God. Like, we, we got to be thinking critically and wisely about this stuff every step along the way. And, and in my estimation, our, the way that technology and life in the digital age is impacting us here and now and impacting our, like, our spiritual lives and our lives, our relationships with one another, relationship with God. I think it's one of the easiest things, one, to not think about. And I think it's also one of the most dangerous things to not think about right now. So today is not like a how-to manual uh, on like how to like fix our digital lives or, or like practical steps to, uh, 10 steps to, to fixing this issue or whatnot. It's more of a 10,000 foot view for us to start like pumping the brakes and, and thinking more broadly about our relationship with technology and with like life in the digital age in general. Like you, you may think of what I say today in terms of like your use of a phone or a, maybe it's the TV or whatever it is. Um, we have to think about this on, on all possible levels. Don't let this be an issue for, for somebody else, right? So what I want to do is, first of all, back out and, and say, we're going we're gonna to talk about loving your digital neighbor. And to get there first, I want to talk about loving your neighbor. And I want to ask this question. Um, have you ever thought about like, how many commands are God's people called to follow? How many commands are God's people supposed to follow? I, I love walking through this uh, with, uh, with my students at, at Bushnell because there's a lot of different places that you can plop down uh, in scripture and you see any number of commandments or rules or laws that pop up. But how do we know which one is most important? Which list do we go with? And what we do in the discipline of biblical theology, biblical theology is just a discipline where we trace a topic throughout scripture, see how it develops from the very beginning to the very end. And so it's interesting to think just throughout the first three books of the Bible, <coughs> Genesis, Exodus, and Leviticus, what happens with the number of laws that are supposed to be followed by God's people. Well, in Genesis 1, we get a very, well, first of all, we get a beautiful picture of creation, of the created order, followed by this beautiful declaration that humankind is made in God's image. Every single person that you and I encounter, including the one that you look at in the mirror, is made with human dignity, made with 
dignity and value and worth that cannot ever be undone. There is no person that we will ever encounter that does not bear the mark of the image of God. And that should ultimately shape the way we view everybody. And right after that verse, we get the very first command of, of Scripture. And it's very interesting the way that it gets introduced, too. It doesn't say God commanded his people. It says God blessed his people and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Steward what I've given you. In other words, be, faith, be a faithful steward of the thing that is right in front of you. The first command to God's people is very simple and very open-ended. Be faithful with the stuff that's right in front of you. And for all the commands that we get just a few books later, and for all of the instructions that we get for the rest of Scripture, I find it very fascinating that the first command is just very open-ended. It takes a lot of wisdom. It takes a lot of patience. It takes faithfulness, steadiness to understand how do we just learn to be faithful with the thing right in front of us. There's nothing very fancy about following Jesus. It's, it's really just about the daily habit of being faithful with the thing right before our eyes. That's the one command out of Genesis 1. God takes the one command approach. Uh, how does it go? A resounding not good. Yeah, not, not well at all. Just a couple of chapters in and things begin to unravel. And so we get on to Exodus where we get how many commands? We get the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. And I always like to point out when we talk about the Ten Commandments, how far into the book of Exodus the Ten Commandments come. Chapter 20. The Ten Commandments are not a morality test. They're not an entry exam for becoming part of the people of God. No, God takes his people who are in a situation they could not get themselves out of on their own. They could not deliver themselves. And he takes them, moves them to a new space, delivers them, saves them, brings them out, says, you are my people, and then gives them commands, and then says, here's how you ought to live. And the commands were never meant to be oppressive rules that we were supposed to think about having to follow each and every day. Instead, they were, they were principles that were meant to launch a flourishing society. If you, if you have a society where you're not cheating and not lying and not murdering, it's going to go better than if you have people where you're that are lying and cheating and, and murdering. It's not rocket science, right? It's not, it's not rocket science. Ten basic commands. There was the one command. It was like, oh, if you can just faithfully follow God and like let, let everything else fall into place, that would work. Well, that didn't, didn't work. Ten commands will give you a little, bit more, a little bit more black and white, a little bit more instruction on what to do in this scenario or that. So the one command approach didn't work. The ten command approach, how did that go? Even worse. Yeah, not good as well. We could read through the rest of Exodus, really the rest of the Old Testament, and see how those Ten Commands were twisted and ignored. But the clearest evidence that we have that Exodus 20 didn't work out so well, that the Ten Commands did not work out so well, is the book of Leviticus. Where we get not one, not two, 
but 617 laws. 617. Uh, the trend, not great, right? 1 to 10 to 617. Um, I'm not a math person, but that seems to be uh, exponential growth in a way that you wouldn't really want to think about in, when it comes to laws and commands. But why, is it, why does it go like that? There's a number of different like ways to think about it, but I, I think at a base level, it's because as humans, we really like loopholes. We really like to say, like, I, okay, I'm not technically lying here if I just, like, fudge a little bit on this. We, we really like to follow, think that we are checking the box off, following the letter of the law, while not actually letting it filter its way into our life at all. And I actually think 617 commands are way easier to follow, follow than 10. Because 617 commands cover just about every possible situation you could imagine. There's not much room for thinking. You don't have to use much discernment when it comes to 617 commandments. It all becomes black and white, right? I've either done this or I've not done this. You could check off 617 nice little boxes at the end of a day. Are we trending the right way at this point? Not so much. Uh, and this is kind of where it stays for the rest of uh, the Old Testament. There's not really some shift in the number of things that God's people are supposed to uh, be doing. But Jesus comes on the scene then. Uh, and when Jesus shows up, really anywhere, uh, Jesus changes things. Uh, Jesus changes uh, the trajectory. He offers a new trajectory. He offers a new way. Moses went up on the mountain, got it received the law, went back down, got mad, came back up, got it again, and then, and then proceeded. The first thing that Jesus does in his ministry after getting baptized, he goes up on a mountain and says, here's, here's your new law. We talked about this with the Sermon on the Mount uh, back in November. He gives a new law, and what's the cadence of that new law? It's not about the, the following of the specific laws. It's not about even a specific number that you're following. It's all about the heart. What's the cadence of the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said, but I say to you. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. And sure, maybe you've checked off that box. But I say to you, the whole point of the don't commit adultery command was to rid your heart of lust. That's a much more difficult box to check because there's not specific things, right? around it. Committing adultery or not committing adultery, you can clearly say, yes, I did or I did not do that. But monitoring lust in our heart, that is way more difficult. So Jesus reduces the number. Sure, it's not about a number anymore. It's about your heart, which is far, far more difficult. And then in Matthew 22, of course, we get the greatest command. The Pharisees trying to back Jesus into a corner talking to themselves, one of them thinking that they've, they've got it. Well, we'll just ask him, what is the most important thing? What's the most important thing to follow? Because he couldn't possibly, surely he's going to trip over himself answering this one. And Jesus unflinchingly, I feel like he like probably made eye contact with each of them as he like, there's this group of Pharisees around him and he's making eye contact and they're they're excited to watch him fall. And then he just easily says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. 
Love God with all of your everything. And the second one is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, the whole law and the prophets, they rest on these two things. They rest on these two things. Love God and love neighbor as self. In other words, if you can read the Old Testament, if you can read all the law and the prophets, if you can read the Old Testament without coming to the conclusion that all of it is supposed to be pointing us toward love of God and love of neighbor, then we're doing it wrong. What Jesus says here in Matthew 22, it's not just, uh, it's not just an instruction for how to live. It's a, it's a helpful interpretive framework for the entire Old Testament. All of the Old Testament is summed up in these two things, love God and love neighbor. Go back and read the Old Testament then with that as the lens, because that's how Jesus approaches it. Love God and love neighbor. That's the greatest command. And then we move to the greatest love in John 15, where we begin to limit it even further. By Matthew 22, we've gone from 617 down to a mere few, right? Things are narrowing, but again, getting more difficult, I would say. John 15, this beautiful chapter on abiding or remaining with God, goes like this. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for one's friend. He's like, you want to know the pinnacle of obedience, of faithfulness. You want to know the, the example to follow when it comes to Christ-likeness in this world. It is love for a neighbor. And this verse reminds us that love, both here and all throughout Scripture, is consistently synonymous with sacrifice. It's not a perspective. It's not an inkling. It's not a feeling in a particular direction. It's not even a mere action. It is an action, but specifically, it is sacrifice on behalf of another with no expectation of return. That is what biblical love is. And we see it ultimately embodied, of course, in the person of Jesus who gives up his, his life. He says, this is the greatest love to sacrifice on behalf of another. But I find in this passage, perhaps the previous verse, even, even more instructive. Love each other as I have loved you. In other words, if you are going to love another, you have to first steep in the love that I have for you. And this is where I start to worry about our like digital distraction, right? We, we want to muster love for another, sure. But how can we do that if we don't actually take the time to sit and think and soak in the, the extravagant love that God has for us first? Love as I have loved you. The basis for our ability to love another comes first in the love of Jesus for us. There is no other source for love of neighbor than the love of Jesus for us. So Jesus narrows from 617 down to a few, and then Paul crystallizes the fundamental aim of the Christian life. There's a couple of different places we could go uh, to look at this, but I like Galatians 5 uh, in particular. Paul says in a, in a few places, uh, 
Similar to the way Jesus said all the law and the prophets hang on this, uh, Paul then says love is the fulfillment of the law. Look at Galatians 5 verse 13. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. A very moving verse on freedom. Uh, fascinating that I did not see that verse making the rounds on July 4th on social media. Don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh. I think Americans might have missed that verse. <laughs> Do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Again, there's that sacrifice piece. What's the reasoning for? The entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. And we would expect him to say what? We would expect him to say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's what the entire law is fulfilled in. But he doesn't say that. What does he say? The entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. What happened? Did Paul forget love of God? Has that all of a sudden become less important to Paul? Obviously not. Obviously, as we read through Paul's letters, like, love of God is paramount. But what I do think Paul is saying here is, like, if you want to know if you're loving God well, you have to be loving neighbor. The ultimate litmus test for whether we love God well is how we are loving others. How we are sacrificing on behalf of others. Think about the way the trajectory of Scripture moves to this point. It swells immediately to 617 commands and then narrows to this one specific instruction. Love your neighbor as yourself. So if we have made church into something other than our way of loving God and loving neighbor, we've missed the point. If we have conjured up a God who, in our hearts or in our minds, who is something other than love, then we are missing the point. If we think that we can love God while harboring bitterness towards an individual, a particular group, whether it be on the other side of the aisle or the other side of the city or the other side of the country, we have missed the point. Love of neighbor is the ultimate goal, purpose, command. All of the law is fulfilled in this one thing. And so, with that in mind, with that quick, like, biblical theology of a love of neighbor in mind, I think it's incumbent upon every generation to do that work, to be convicted of love of neighbor, and then to ask, what does that look like right now? What does it look like in my particular moment? And there's a lot of different directions that we could take that question in our particular like cultural space, for sure. But one that I worry that we're overlooking a whole lot is how do I do that in a digital age? How do I do that with a phone in my hand? How often should the phone be in my hand? I find it concerning that... Um, 
or, or at least interesting, that most of the dissenting voices on technology use actually come from Silicon Valley and less so from the church. Um, from the very places that these new technologies are being developed and, and used and spread. It's the folks that are there that are seeing the impacts of it and know the reasoning behind so much of it. Those are the ones that are saying, I'm not letting my kids touch it, like, I, and I'm backing off myself. I hear that so much more from voices who aren't necessarily trying to follow Jesus. They're just like trying to be healthy human beings. It's coming from there more so than it is from the church. And I worry that we're just being unthinking about it. And to be uncritical about such a significant, pervasive part of our lives is tantamount to doing damage to our own spiritual walk. So how can we then begin to pay some closer attention. Again, I'm not going to try to give like some 10-step plan to getting this just right, but I want to point out a few vices that I think come from um, being in a digital age and the way that the fruit of the Spirit kind of acts as antidotes to those. Uh, Jay Kim wrote a great book called Analog Christian in which he kind of walks through these. So I'm kind of adapting these from from that book, but what I'm calling he didn't call them the vices of devices. I feel like I should call him up and say, "Hey, next next version of your book, the vices of devices, has a nice ring to it. You should put that in there and uh, give me a little note." <clears throat> Fruit of the spirit as the antidote for the vices of devices. Hopefully, that's at least annoying enough to like bother you on a Tuesday morning. <laughs> First, self-centric despair. Um, and we've all probably experienced this on some level or another. But the more insular we become, the more self-focused we become, the more that that edges towards despair in our, in our own lives. I find it so, so fascinating and, and symbolic, really, that when we are looking at our phones and scrolling through whatever or checking up on whatever or looking at whatever notification, that the moment we turn it off, we're just staring right back at ourselves. It's just a mirror. And that's all of our, that's all our phone usage is. It's just a mirror about what is most important to us. And the more, and like the less distance we have here, the less time we have like away from here, the more that just goes deeper into a well of despair. We've all felt it. Comparison, of course. Comparison, I think, is, it's been attributed to Teddy Roosevelt. I don't know if he was the first one to say it, but comparison, of course, being the thief of joy. When we see somebody doing better than us, we think, woe is me. When we see somebody doing worse off uh, than us, we think, ah, oh, I've got it together. Both of those things eat away a genuine Christ-filled joy. And that's all social media, and not all social media, but so much of what we see online is, is meant to create, cult, cultivate some dis dissatisfaction in our life, right? Some measure of like, oh, I wish I had that. That will eat away at a soul over time. Self-centric despair, comparison, there's contempt. This sort of like low-grade disgust for another that we let go unchecked in our hearts, right? Contempt, not just, not outright hate necessarily. Uh, a cool hate is, is what some researchers call it. Something that we let just sort of like simmer under the surface. What could that possibly do to our ability to love a neighbor? 
Contempt, impatience, of course. Impatience, which goes hand in hand, I think, with distraction, are uh, want it and want it now mentality um, is <laughs> measured out, and it's um, it's backed up nicely by the fact that we have a, a thing to distract us at any given moment. I'm impatient right now. Oh, I'll just pick up my phone and look at whatever it wants me to look at right now, which is all we're doing when we're picking up our phones, right? We think we're looking at what we think we want to look at, but we're looking at what it wants us to look at. That's a whole other thing to talk about. Impatience. We can't, we can't just sit and be. Hostility. This is like contempt, but uh, grown up a little bit. It's that anger towards another, a disgust, a contempt towards another that we let fester under the surface. And it will ultimately come out in unhelpful ways. In ways that look a whole lot, uh, in ways that don't look a whole lot like love of neighbor. Hostility, there's forgetfulness. I don't think we are doing enough as a church to think about the way that our brains um, affect our spirituality and for forgetfulness to go hand in hand with technology use, which is like proven time and time again, our, our inability to remember even the most basic of stuff that does something to our souls over time. The most frequent command throughout scripture is what? Remember. Remember what I've done. Remember what I've done in your life. If we're cultivating the inability to remember, like that does, that is not benign. That is not neutral. That is not a neutral factor for our souls. Outrage, which is a better word than anger, because anger at this point just kind of washes over us, right? We've been so numbed to the shrill tone of absolutely everything from every angle. Anger is just like, man, it's just the, the water we swim in now. But outrage, yeah. You can't turn on a news channel without uh, being provoked towards outrage or not. Like that, that is the goal of news now. It's not so much dispensing of information. It's couching information in a particular way to make you feel a certain way, to make you a little more mad than you were when, you've, when you turned it on. You want a good, a good way to like ruin a, a good day? Just like turn on the news. Flip open Twitter. It's like, ah, it's like, oh, it, was, it was a good day until now. But that's not nothing when it comes to our souls, right? And then finally, reckless indulgence, cultivating the inability to say no. There's so many addictions and so many different veins that we could talk about when it comes to technology use or device devices. Um, and the more that we lose our ability to say no, um, the more we are losing out on that faith, that daily faithful element to us, to our lives. So it, in contrast to these, uh, J. Kim kind of puts up the eight, the, the nine fruit of the spirit. He combines two for one of them. But think about it. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The fruit of the Spirit. Not the fruits of the Spirit. Not like an individual thing to work on here and there. 
although it's good to care about joy and to care about self-control individually. But the point is, the more that we spend time with God, the more we're letting the Spirit work in our lives, these are the things collectively that will work themselves out in our lives. Why? Because this is who God is, ultimately. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If we can, again, if we can read scripture and not see God as primarily those things, we're missing the point. And that is the thing that we ought to be moving towards. In place of self-centric despair, we have love. Why? Because the cure for inner pain, there's, there's a whole lot of work that we can be doing on, on many different levels to be like getting healed as, as people of Jesus uh, and one of the things that we can do to heal inner pain is just to turn the attention from inside to outside. It's amazing how great of an impact a conversation with a neighbor can have. Like just looking up and looking a human being in the face, caring about somebody else for a minute. It's amazing the healing balm that that is for the heart. You want to undo the despair, like the insular, like the cycle of just thinking about yourself and only yourself. Go care for another. Love undoes self-centric despair. Joy undoes comparison. Life and life to the full is what Jesus offers. And comparison undoes our ability to live in that, to any capacity. Peace undoes contempt, peace, shalom, full life, goodness that God intends for us to live in. When we are marked by the peace of God, it is difficult to maintain disgust towards another. The, the whole point of being marked by the love of God or by the peace of God is that it then permeate our spheres, that it then permeate our perspectives, Right? Peace undoes contempt. Of course, patience undoes impatience. Uh, and that's an easy sentence to say out loud. Uh, a far more difficult one to uh, live. And, uh, and a dangerous one to pray about, we know. If, you, if, you, if you've had any, uh, any experience in the Christian life at all, you pray for some patience. And of course, uh, what you get is not so much a dollop of patience, but a whole boatload of opportunities to grow out of impatience <clears throat> into patience. I'm glad to hear the laughs. I'm glad that somebody else, I'm sure you might know somebody who <clears throat> could pray in that way. Hostility is undone by kindness and goodness. You know, it says the kindness, Paul says the kindness of God leads us to repentance. You think of God as kind very often? God is nice. Are we? Like, do, do the people in our lives think that we like them? That, is, that question is not other than. It's not opposed to. It's not some other realm than our Christian discipleship. Kindness and goodness get us out of the hostility cycle. Faithfulness undoes 
forgetfulness. I love this because it's the steady plodding along each each day. Um, and maybe it's a habit of, of journaling that, could, that does this for you. Or um, maybe some sort of gratitude practice. Some sort of regular moment of saying, this is who God is in my life. This is the faithfulness of God in my life right now. And I want to be faithful to think about that, to care about that. That undoes our forgetfulness over time. Outrage is undone with gentleness. This is why I'm all about the birds. Right? Part of why. Birds are amazing. There's so many reasons to be all about the birds. <laughs> but just being outside. Go, like, go like, watch a butterfly like flit from flower to flower. From Just give it five minutes. And then try to be like, real, real mad at something. It doesn't work. Gentleness is not a weak value. Gentleness is not weakness. It is pivotal to our ability to stand up and love like we mean it. Gentleness undoes outrage. And finally, self-control undoes reckless indulgence. I always, they, these aren't individual characteristics, but I always found it interesting that self-control was the last one in the fruit of the Spirit, because if we don't have it, the rest kind of unravel, right? If we can't say no to something when it matters, or say yes to something when it, when it matters, um, then indulgence will be the natural trend of our hearts and our minds and, and our lives. We are good at indulging. We are good at having a little too much of a good thing letting it get out of hand, letting a good thing become an ultimate thing. That is the essence of idolatry, right? It's the essence of the point all, all along. I think at this point, it's, it's important to ask ourselves, okay, if loving neighbor as self is the ultimate goal, how does technology, how does life in this particular digital moment, how does all of that impact my ability to love well? Whether it's uh, loving somebody in an online space, or far more importantly, like in person. Um, when I ask this questions in, in like conversational settings and whatnot, and we try to list out the positive ways that technology is helping us love one another, the conversation is usually pretty short. And then when we talk about the ways that it's making it more difficult, uh, the conversation does not end. We know inherently the things that it's doing uh, to us, but are we going to pay attention to those things enough to, to start like making headway in another direction. Now we could come up with any new like uh, a new bevy of, of habits for how we spend time with our technology, how, how we approach our phones and all of that and whatnot. And I think we should spend careful time doing that. Um, but it, all of that, all those little practices, um, they're going to feel empty. They're going to feel like just another commandment being added on if we are not first and foremost taking the time to steep ourselves in the love of God.
Love each other as I have loved you. It is the love of God for us first that we are meant to show to another. And so I would, uh, I w- I'm going to leave you with just a few like reflection questions. This is, a, this is a whole series that we could do at some point. It would probably be worthwhile to think about all of the ways that we, we could be changing habits and whatnot. But from a 10,000 foot perspective, let's just think about this. Maybe something that you could implement just this week. Um, how, first, how can we use technology less? I think probably the first step to using technology well is to learn how to use it a little bit less. Learning to have at least some parts of our day where the, where, that are off limits to technology, where a screen doesn't get to dictate what we're thinking about, talking about, and whatnot. I, fi- I find like the beginning and the end of my days to be those margins that are most important for this. And when I'm doing well, I'm, I'm maintaining that habit. And when I'm not doing well, like that's when that habit uh, ebbs and flows or whatnot. I don't have time to figure out what I'm thinking about or what God is saying in the morning if I look at a screen first. Like that's, there's just no way around it. How can we use it less? How can we use it better? We can curate the stuff in our lives, the, the, the apps, the pieces of technology that we have. We can use it. There, there's lots of great tools out there to grow. And there's more podcasts about the Bible and about, about loving neighbor well than you could possibly ever listen to. Like, are those the things that are taking up your time? Or is it the other stuff? It's not that that has to be the only thing. But there is good stuff out there, and it can be used a particular way. Uh, one little, little, little thing that I do in my life is I have my social media apps in a folder on my phone labeled Time Waste. So, uh, so no, no matter what, anytime I go to use any app, Twitter, Instagram, whatever, I have to go through the reminder first that I could literally be doing anything else with my time at that moment. Does it keep me from using social media altogether? No. But is it a little nudge, a little reminder over time? Yes. And those things do add up. Bother ourselves with these things. Next, how can we make room in our lives to let in the love of God? This is the most important question. How can we how can we create the margin for um, letting the source fill the reservoir? How do we let in the love of God? And then we ask, how can we be instruments of love in our society, in our immediate context, in West Eugene? These are the things that um, ought to be pricking our hearts and running through our minds as believers. Um, Singer-songwriter uh, John Guerra has this great little, little line at the end of one of his songs. Uh, worship team, you can go ahead and start coming up. We'll have prayer team come up as, as we start to, to wind down here. Um, John Guerra says, Love has a million disguises, but winning is simply not one. I feel like for so many today that the Christian life has become about winning this or that argument, or winning this or that culture war, winning this or that election, whatever it may be. Winning has a million, love has a million 
disguises, but winning is simply not one of them. So how can we let the love and the joy and the peace and the patience and the kindness and the goodness and the faithfulness and the gentleness and the self-control of God permeate our hearts and our lives? Lord, we thank you uh, for meeting us this morning. We ask that you uh, bother us into faithfulness and new obedience uh, in these areas, that as you convict us, that we walk faithfully. Uh, We pray that we walk faithfully into those things, Um, that we follow you where you're leading. Thank you for meeting us. In Jesus' name, amen.